As more people receive COVID-19 vaccines, California schools are growing closer to fully reopening. It'll be a welcome relief for children and parents in Orange County struggling with the stress and mental health effects of nearly a year of remote learning. But we're not quite there yet. Why is it important to get children back in the classroom? And what have UCI researchers learned about how to open schools safely? From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Dan Cooper, a pediatrician, and Dr. Chuli Uyoa, an expert in pediatric infectious diseases. Both of them are at UCI Health. Dr. Cooper and Dr. Uyoa, thank you for joining me today on the UCI Podcast. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Dr. Uyoa, students in Orange County were sent home almost a year ago now and at the start of the pandemic. How many of them have actually seen the inside of a classroom in person since then? Yeah, so at the start of the pandemic, Orange County was very unique in the sense that many schools initially did open. The majority of them were private schools. Some of them were charter schools. And then we had a subset of public schools. However, when um, the governor had a mandate, a lot of the schools had to close again. And so in order for them to then essentially reopen, and how they reopened looked very differently depending on the school. Um, But in order to reopen, period, then they had to fill out a school waiver. And so this is a long application that they had to fill out and send it over to our local public health department to review. And those schools that were whose applications were accepted were able to reopen. And so the majority of the schools ended up being private schools. And I will say that a lot of those schools that were able to reopen have been wonderful examples of our ability to interact safely and implement um, COVID mitigation procedures when we have a lot of resources. So for many public school students, they really haven't been in the classroom at all, or if they have, maybe just in in a very limited capacity for almost a year now. Right. And let me just add to what Dr. Uyo said that, you know, unfortunately, the schools, the kids that have been most impacted by not being in school have been kids in the low income, largely Hispanic neighborhoods of our county. Some of the public schools in, uh, as Dr. Uyo mentioned, uh, in Orange County did open. Uh, it, it sort of tracked with uh, socioeconomics. Uh, where the schools like Irvine Unified School District, Tustin Unified School District, had enough expertise on from parents of the kids that they formed uh, advisory groups. The UCI and Chalk formed an advisory group for some schools that, that uh, asked for our help. But uh, the majority of low-income kids in Orange County have not been in school since the beginning of the pandemic. Let's uh let's go back in time a little bit to those first decisions at the beginning of the pandemic uh, when when officials were making the choice to start locking down society in the K through 12 education world what were those conversations like you know what was the feeling and what was the reasoning behind closing schools at that time 
So at, at that time, very little was known about uh, COVID-19 with regards to children. And even now we're just barely learning a lot more about that. But I think they were just extrapolating data and kind of from prior experiences where we've been in situations where we've had epidemics. And so based on you know, the projections, they, we, they didn't know what to think, whether schools were gonna be kind of hot spots for transmission and outbreaks in the, in the community. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why everyone kind of proceeded with significant caution in terms of a reopening. And let me just add to, to uh, what Dr. Rio said, which is absolutely correct. You know, it really was, we didn't know, uh, you know, the Europeans and the Asian schools were closed almost immediately. But one of the things we learned early on was that many of those schools in Europe and Asia reopened voluntarily, at least they didn't mandate that kids go to school. So as of, you know, even by about May and June, the data were starting to come in that showed that if the schools were careful, if they really paid attention to the mitigation procedures, there was very little evidence that the schools were serving as a sort of a uh, a fostering bed for infection. And two things happened here. One, there were some people who felt that the whole thing about closing schools was uh, not a problem, that you should just send your kids back immediately. There was no need to consider anything like face masks wearing. And the Orange County Board of Education at that point put together this symposium in which they actually advocated for simply opening the schools. And what that did really was have the opposite effect because parents, kids, educators, we we knew that to just pretend that there was no problem would not give parents the sense of confidence that they needed. Rather, what many of us felt was that we really should put into place plans to keep the schools safe and healthy places. And I think had we done that more systematically, the way some of the private schools did, the way the Catholic schools did, a lot more kids would be in school right now. Well, and Dr. Uyoa, how has our understanding of how children contract or spread COVID-19 changed since the very beginning of of the pandemic? What, What knowledge have we gained about that? So I think now we do have a little bit more information in terms of the role that children play in the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. And so I think, and more recently, we conducted, Dr. Cooper and I conducted a study within our schools in Orange County, um, very small study, but we, very impactful study, I believe, and um, looking at four very demographically diverse schools where we specifically looked at that, the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in children, so basically students and staff as the schools reopened. And in our study, um, we really didn't find any evidence that children play a significant role in the transmission of the virus. In fact, we had, a, uh, thankfully in that study, we had a subset of kids that were in person in school and then others that were actually home learning, you know, distance learning. And we actually found higher, I guess, numbers of positivity rates in those that were in home learning than in school learning. This is, it's nothing's a perfect environment and certainly transmission can occur and it will occur whenever you have a bunch of people in close proximities. But the important thing is that just following the mitigation procedures. But as children alone, they are uh, mildly symptomatic. The majority of them, certainly I'm a pediatric infectious diseases doctor, so I see the full spectrum and kids do get um, hospitalized, but the vast majority are asymptomatic, minimally symptomatic, and it appears as though they don't play a significant role 
in the transmission, although they can transmit the virus. One of the things that we did in the study was we adapted an approach that had been used to actually quantify physical activity and other aspects of school life in kids to look at the mitigation procedures so we could quantify in a school how well face mask wearing was being adhered to or how well the school was able to maintain physical distancing. And we think this is going to be a very important tool moving forward for schools to be able to gauge how well they're able to put into place mitigation. And if they find they're not doing a good job, they can take corrective action. Because even with the vaccine, remember, no children under the age of 12 have even been in any kind of a test for a vaccine. I think these mitigation procedures are going to be with us for a significant amount of time. So are there any any particular best practices um, that you're able to draw from this study that schools should be implementing going forward? Just starting with the basics of the best practice. So wearing your mask, wearing your mask properly. So it should be covering your nose and your mouth, maintaining distance whenever possible. You know, I know there are certain scenarios where sometimes teachers and students need to be in closer proximity, but it's very important that when they are in closer proximity, that they continue to wear their masks. And then when they don't have to be in those situations to try to maintain their distance of six feet um, or more and hand hygiene, just washing hands. So I think if you follow those three basic rules that we've been encouraging throughout the pandemic, it, it really works and it helps to decrease the spread of infection. One of the things that we found with our direct observation, which I, I think is, is fairly intuitive, is that the, the, the most uh, dangerous times are lunchtime. Hmm. And so uh, if a school, if we're going to start thinking about this correctly, that, you know, that's where we should really think about where we sit the kids at the tables, making sure that they have their masks with them. That's something we can actually do something about. One of the things we discovered from studying healthcare workers who were actually dealing with COVID positive patients is that they were not being infected uh, predominantly at all from their patients. But when healthcare workers got infected, it was what they called break room breakouts, mm. where they sat, they had coffee together, they relaxed. So that this is something we learned from our direct observation. And the other point is, we are, we're sort of losing on the other side of the, the other pandemic of obesity and physical inactivity. And there is no reason not to do physical activity. There's no reason not to have PE. We saw with our studies that we could maintain physical distancing within PE, we could maintain high activity, and we do not want to see these kids who, particularly lower socioeconomic kids who are already at risk for you know, weight gain and physical inactivity, we don't want to see that worsen because the health consequences of that are very serious as well. And presumably for PE class, they can usually do that outside. Right. And we're, we're very fortunate, obviously, in Southern California. Uh, unlike uh, other parts of the country where, you know, winter is very cold and you, you just can't be outside. We have the distinct advantage of for most of the year we can do PE outside. Well, so as we're looking at this issue of how susceptible children are to SARS-CoV-2 and, and how much schools can contribute to the spread of the disease, uh, a big issue right now is when teachers might be able to get vaccinated um, and and the the state and, and local authorities are trying to figure out how to prioritize who gets the vaccine first um, and whether teachers should be closer to the top of the line. 
based on the evidence uh, that you've seen, Dr. Uyoa, do you think that all teachers need to be vaccinated before we can open schools? Or do you think there's a safe way to do it before every teacher has been vaccinated? I, so I have, I agree with both of those statements. I think that there are safe ways to reopen. I mean, certainly we have reopened society and restaurants and everything, and we've tried to implement, you know, these opening strategies in safe ways by wearing masks and, and um, having, um, you know, distance between people, et cetera. So there are ways. However, I do believe strongly that our teachers should be prioritized and that they should be um, included. And I, it is my impression that they will be included in the next phase 1B of the state's vaccination priority uh, list. And so I'm hopeful that we will stick to that and that they will be included in the next group and be eligible. I think we've talked today and said, hey, we don't think it's a, you know, schools don't seem to be hotspots for disease spread, but there have been cases of staff members uh, being infected and becoming very, very ill. You know, there are always exceptions, but one sick person or one dying person is one too many. Dr. Cooper? I, I agree. And, 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 you know, there's no zero risk. Even before the pandemic, there were diseases like flu, influenza that kids could get and transmit to teachers and a tiny, tiny percentage of people uh, would get very, very sick from those diseases. I really agree with Dr. Yuyo. I, I, I'm on the uh, one of the Orange County uh, advisory committees and have urged, um, uh, you know, to the extent that we can, that the teachers really get high priority. And I would also suggest that, you know, you don't want to put people at risk. So teachers who are in a high risk group should probably be doing more distance teaching. But I, I think that as a society, we would have done much better had we looked at the problem of opening schools logistically and uh, opened them earlier with really good plans to maintain safety at the schools. Well, and Dr. Cooper, I want to go back to something that you've mentioned a couple times now, which is the different levels of uh, impact on different socioeconomic groups for for school closures and how that impacts different different families differently. Um, you know, what is that disparity for how a wealthier family in a wealthier school district might be affected by a school closure and how uh, a lower income family in a lower income school district might be affected? Well, this is a great question and it, it really gets to the heart of the matter. So just consider square footage and, and who's living in a home and the ability of a child in a lower socioeconomic neighborhood, perhaps, for example, in Santa Ana, compared to a neighborhood in Newport Beach or even Irvine. In the former neighborhood, in the lower socioeconomic, you often have multi-generational families under one roof. Tragically, even things like uh, the bandwidth of the internet connection is not as good, so it makes the, uh, the ability to do distance learning that much less. More often than not, both parents may be working uh, and don't have a lot of time to spend with their kids to ensure that they are following their lessons. And so what we've seen is uh, the rate of kids either just dropping out of internet learning from lower income homes is higher mm. than it is in a place like Newport Beach. And the inability for the kids to have a place to play, uh, because many times in those neighborhoods, uh, parents don't feel that it's safe for their kids to just go out and play. Uh, so in so many ways, this school shutdown has conspired against the well-being and health of lower uh, socioeconomic kids. 
And I just want to piggyback and say one more thing um, is that, you know, schools provide a benefit to families beyond providing education, right? So they also provide childcare, a lot of school services, meals. So that's a place where a lot of kids from lower income families, that's where they eat. And, um, and they provide other family support system. It's certainly going to school actually contributes to their mental well-being, mental health. So without in-person instruction, you know, children are at increased risk of falling behind academically, but also exacerbating a lot of these educational inequalities and these other inequalities. Julie's absolutely right. It, but remember, all kids have generally suffered. And even if you look at a school like Irvine, the Irvine police tell me that incidence of uh, suicide, attempted suicide among school-age kids is up by about 20%. Wow, that's incredibly tragic. Dr. Cooper, is there, are there any, is there anything that we can do as a society to address that beyond just getting back into the, into the classroom? Well, I, I think that um, we need to put politics aside and everybody work together to understand that it is in the best interest of our society to have our kids at school. That's number one. Number two, and I think Dr. Uyo would agree with me, we looked at schools, that, that, that private schools that have large campuses and were able to invest in putting mitigation into place. And we looked at schools in lower income that had wonderful teachers and wonderful principals who worked uh, their hearts out to make sure that their kids were kept safe. We as a society need to say two things. One, schools have to be healthy places. And number two, there should be no difference between the quality of education and facility at a private school in Newport Beach and an inner city school in the middle of Santa Ana. As we look at the, you know, the coming months and what we need to do in the coming months as we try and really end the pandemic, Dr. Uyoa, do you see that there's some light at the end of this tunnel for children in school and for getting schools open? And how do we get there? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do see some light at the end of the tunnel. I think that we've, uh, we've learned a lot, I think, over the past um, several months, almost a year. And so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we'll move forward and have our teachers vaccinated. And then everyone's going to feel a little bit more comfortable reopening schools. And I think that we can do so in a gradual way and get everyone back into school because otherwise, you know, this is just going to drag on forever. And the folks that are suffering the most are our children, unfortunately, right now. So I am hopeful that we will be able to reopen schools and that teachers will also get vaccinated and facilitate that process. But just a cautionary note, and I don't mean to be the Debbie Downer, <laughs> but uh, we do we do have obstacles ahead. Um, you know, there are emerging variants of this virus. We don't precisely know, you know, whether children will be more affected. Dr. Uyoa pointed out that right now, fortunately, most kids are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. Will that be true for the 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 viral variants? Will will the vaccine work? So I think we have to take Cautious, uh, cautiously optimistic, but we can't forget that we may, we may have to continue a mitigation procedure and understanding that we cannot eliminate the risk, but we can minimize it and we can deal with it. Yes, reopening is going to be with still strict mitigation procedures. Um, and even if you're vaccinated, you know, we still need to learn more about how vaccines actually affect the transmission of the virus, et cetera, et cetera. And Aaron, remember, uh, as we were saying, 
So far, very few kids between the age of 12 and 16 have really been in any kind of clinical trial with a vaccine, and no children between the ages of zero and 12 have been, even been entered in a safety or early phase clinical trial. So there's a lot of work to do in the months ahead. To make sure that the vaccine is effective for children and, and safe. Correct. Dr. Cooper and Dr. Uyoa, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI Podcast wherever you listen.